0: Hello and welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm Hannah Harley-Young, a photographer by trade and a foodie at heart. Each week, I sit down and chat all things food with well-known foodies, industry insiders, chefs, critics, and people who just love their food. Today we have Richard Young, the UK's most acclaimed showbiz photographer. For over 45 years, he has photographed the glitz and the glamour of the celebrity world, working with everyone from Elizabeth Taylor to the Rolling Stones, Robert De Niro to Leonardo DiCaprio, and David Beckham to Kate Moss. He also happens to be my father, but I wanted to bring him on the podcast as I know all too well how much he loves food and the importance it's played in his life as a young kid into his adult life. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dad.
1: (laughs) You're welcome, my darling daughter.
0: (laughs) So, let's get started. I've obviously given a little intro about what you do. Can you sort of let everyone know how you even got into this crazy world? I was born. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Mazeltov. well done. Okay, that's a good start. Um,
1: how did I get, it? what, being a photographer? Yeah, how did you oh, get to become a photographer? Um, it was absolutely by accident, and um, I was not looking to become a photographer. I was looking to maybe venture into the music business, you know, in some shape or form. Hopefully, I was hoping to be maybe a producer or engineer or something in a recording studio, but uh, failed miserably. But I I got a job working in a bookshop in Regent Street, and um, uh, I, uh, two weeks after being there, Uh, A Nikon camera was planted in my hands and told to go off to the West Country to produce some photographs for... Um, a book my, the my boss wanted to illustrate. And uh, I failed miserably because I came back to London with three rolls of black and white film, having lied to him, saying I didn't know about photography. And I really, really didn't know anything about photography. And uh, um, was, there was no images that came on the film. That was
0: a good start.
1: It was a great start. And so
0: what year was that?
1: That was 1973.
0: OK. And I guess the rest is history, really, isn't it?
1: Well... Yes, I guess it is in some ways, because about six weeks or seven weeks after that disaster, he let me keep the camera when when we came, when I came back to London, and uh, he um, said to me, "Go and teach yourself how to use it and i did i I really, really set my heart on learning about the necessary fundamental things about how to operate a camera
0: but how in those days i mean you didn't have things like youtube tutorials how did you even know how to it was practice
1: practice 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 making mistakes learning about apertures learning about focusing learning about film speed uh asa which was on you know kind of um which which is
0: now iso on the digital camera
1: and um and I went into a lot of camera stores around the West End asking questions. And by using the camera nearly every day, which he, he, he let me keep, um, things came together.
0: And what was the camera?
1: The camera was a Nikon FTN yes. platonic head camera.
0: Well, thank God it was a Nikon. Analogue. <laughs> wow. <laughs> God, I haven't used one of those in a while. And so, okay, so you sort of, you teach yourself how to use this camera. And what would you say was your big break? What sort of really cemented the job for you.
1: November 1974 gate crashing Richard Burton's birthday party at the Dorchester Hotel getting 10 good pictures on very thin legs because I left the flash on <laughs> and um, um, of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton cutting the birthday cake and, and kissing and hugging and um, and then being thrown out personally by Elizabeth Taylor.
0: Great, nice and but obviously sort of in later life you you sort of developed quite a nice relationship with her didn't you I
1: I did and she became a friend she forgave me and we had um, many we did many things together you know many jobs and everything and uh, um, and it all kind of came to a head around about year 2000 in the summer When her attorney called me from Los Angeles and asked me if I'm going to be in London next week because she's visiting London to meet the queen and and become a dame. And would I do the honors of being there um, doing all the photographs, which, of course, I did, which ended up being this wonderful lunch at the Dorchester in the Oliver Messel suite on the ninth floor and taking her out onto the balcony or onto the terrace and and doing these lovely pose pictures with her medal
0: incredible amazing how you came around 360 yes and just sort of to lastly touch on on your career you worked very closely with the late Freddie Mercury which I know a lot of our listeners would be quite interested in hearing about
1: yeah Queen and Freddie Mercury came into my life around about 1977 78 my first thing I did with them was Um, I had to go and do a stills on a video shoot in Wimbledon Stadium, which was called Fat Bottom Women, uh, (laughs) where um, no one told me what the situation was, but when I got there, there was 100 naked ladies on bicycles circling um, Wimbledon Stadium. Um, That must have
0: been difficult for you.
1: That was very, very difficult (laughs) because my focusing wasn't really... (laughs) Well, Hasn't Lord, been the
0: same since, has it? No,
1: my, my focusing was a bit bizarre that day. <laughs> yes.
0: And so you, how did your relationship develop with Queen and, and Freddie in particular? Well,
1: with Freddie, especially, we, you know, he took a shine to me and um, on a professional level. And um, we worked a lot for the next 11 years and uh, it was fantastic. And, you know, he was very kind and very generous
0: incredible I mean he he sounds like an amazing guy I wish I'd, I'd got to meet him actually so kind of just bringing it now towards sort of the idea of the food you grew up in Hackney in Stamford Hill good Jewish boy how has food played a part in your life in particular when you were growing up
1: food as a child growing up was very very important I don't remember too much about food as a young very much a young you know youngster yeah but it was when I got into my teens, you know my early teens um and and I got out of the house a lot more and um i I used to go to like all these club dances in Stamford Hill and everything, and there was various places up there which were really really ex- you know really exciting, like the e n a bar and they made the best potato luckers and salt beef sandwiches, so we didn't have to slap all the way to Whitechapel to go to Bloom's to get a salt beef sandwich um and which was delicious but their potato luckers on a trolley bus back home after a dance on a sunday night um for you know threepence um, was um incredible you know hot potato lutker mm. on a 10 o'clock bus down from snaver hill to Stoughton. what Fabulous. more could you ask for of
0: course and obviously sort of growing up in a jewish household what was the influence like in the home did you were you guys kosher who cooked did you observe a lot of the holidays and Shabbat? And tell us a bit about that.
1: It wasn't a kosher house as such, although they didn't have they do, they wouldn't have bacon there. Uh, my mum introduced bacon into the house um, very soon after my father passed away. So I, from what I can gather. Okay. But growing up, my mother made the worst chicken because she, it was always so dry and everything. It was like sandpaper, but she was very good on fish. Um, She did very good fried fish and chopped liver and and she loved to make cofilter fish balls. Uh, I mean, it was great. Not fried or anything. Just like nice boiled cofilter fish Mm. balls with little pieces of carrot in it. And then there was this other thing I I may have mentioned to you some weeks ago um, about some jelly thing with a calf. um, It's
0: a calf's foot.
1: Calf's foot foot with a jelly, hard-boiled eggs and garlic and everything. And it was Great, but she used to make her own um, new green cucumbers and leave them in a very dark cupboard for about a month, be- so so they could really kind Fement of ferment. Yes, exactly of, you know, to become pickle. new, yeah, pickled and become new greens. It was re- she was really good at that stuff. Delicious. Not very good on chicken. Okay. Sorry.
0: And did she make sort of all the other staples like the chopped liver, the egg and onion, the? uh you said could fish did she what about her matzah ball soup homemade matzah ball
1: soups were fantastic and she made you know it was always a, a stable th- thing that you know on a friday night you know she used to light the candles and do a little prayer and um and yeah you know it was quite well not so i wouldn't say a completely religious household but she, they did observe um, the more important holidays of the year, like Yom Kippur and 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 Rosh Hashanah, and all those kind of things. And and as a kid, my sister Rochelle and I would dress up and go over Springfield Park by the bandstand because that's where all the Jewish um, boys and girls used to go and and spend. Um, the afternoon on those holidays and and if I can remember rightly the weather was always excellent because it was September and um, you know September being my favorite month and my birthday month and everything it was really really nice.
0: I know you touched on your potato luckers, but what was the food culture like in London, specifically in East London at that time? You know, we East London nowadays is full of all these hipsters and it's the food scene in East London is at its absolute best. What was it like in those days? I mean, was there a was there a lot of different variety? What could you get?
1: Well, it was still post-war, and it was still miserable in some, in in, in many ways of of the food culture. Um, you know, there was still um, a, an East End to be which was occupied by a Jewish community, so there was a lot of kind of like kosher restaurants and Jewish restaurants around the, the East End. Um, the e- Asian community was slowly moving into Brick lane and places Indian restaurants and what have you um and which you know was a, a new development a new movement and a, a new attitude to food um but generally food didn't really get going in in london especially in in the sense of high profile restaurants until the early 70s
0: and when you moved out of when, when you eventually moved out of home did you start to learn how to cook yourself or were you sort of eating out all the time?
1: Well, I, I, McVitie's shortcake biscuits were quite popular with raisins in. That explains um, a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and sausages and baked beans in, in my little bed sit in, in Ells Court uh, figured quite quite a lot. Lovely. But there was quite a few restaurants on the Ells Court Road where I used to go and have um, curried eggs, um, which was always nice, rice with curried eggs. And then there was a beef uh, stroganoff, in, in a particular restaurant, and I can 't remember what it's called, which was also in el's Court, it's when I moved to Chelsea and I saw what King's Road had to offer that that kind of the bistro period was starting to happen in London, and so there was like um, uh, a lot more chicken dish dishes and things like that um, things and pizza pizza didn't come along to much later really in, yeah. in in a big way
0: and a special mention to the bagel bake. On Brick Lane, I mean that's been around for God knows Don- how long. Donkey's years. I mean yeah. that's
1: been around from the days my dad first started working in, in Middlesex Street, selling his um, you know his stuff on on his stall. And you know the one place that stands out in my mind um, from from memories of going going to the East End and, and seeing my father working in um, on his stall most Sundays was in Wentworth Street. There was a place called Mossy Marks. And there was a man there who had about 30 different varieties of smoked salmon. Mm -hmm. And he used to cut them with a very sharp knife. And they were so thin, it was transparent. It was delicious. And then there was the old guy outside sitting on his stool, kind of um, with two big sacks of bagels, freshly made bagels. And my mum used to buy them all the time from him and and the smoked salmon from Mossy Marks. And uh, it was fantastic. They I'm still did. the only train spotter that has smoked salmon bagels at the end of the platform.
0: <laughs> that was when you were Ever- at Evering Road Station, was it? No.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, from Evering Road all the way up to Liverpool Street, it was very hard to keep the bagels kind of still <laughs> folded up in there in my satchel.
0: God, you had a real rock and roll life during your train spotting days,
1: did not oh, you? Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: And did the bagel actually make it till lunchtime? Because I can't imagine it did.
1: It made it to Platform 9. <laughs> It made it to platform nine <laughs> in time for the 1120 from Norwich coming in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's how you time it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's brilliant.
1: To me, that sounded like lunchtime. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, sort of fast forwarding a little bit, you sort of enter this world of the sort of glitz and glamour, the showbiz, it's all going off in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, these parties, obviously, aside from supplying alcohol and it all being a bit wild and crazy. What was the food and the canopy scene, which is obviously quite big these days? What what were you experiencing at that time? Was it was it a thing to be serving food at parties? Oh,
1: absolutely, and it still is to this day. It's very very important that you 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 give your um, guests a good quality canopy because um, you got to remember a lot of the things start at six thirty. So most of the people that come to the, come to the parties, the guests. Haven't really eaten since lunchtime um, and uh, they're hungry, so you've got to kind of not necessarily put on a whole big table of food but make sure people are going around with substantial um, kind of canopies that make it um, worth their while going to a party. I think the, the food is this is as important as the party and the product that they're trying to sell.
0: I totally agree. I think myself being on the scene for a few years, I actually judge a party by what the canapes are like. <laughs> Me too.
1: I mean, if I walk into a party and they've only got peanuts and chicken volvon, I don't, I leave. You're
0: leaving. <laughs> I go to the next party.
1: Yeah.
0: In fact, I remember we bonded, you and I, over um, a job a couple of years ago. I think it was the, uh, the Royal Academy of Arts Summer Party does the most amazing spread in all of their galleries. Yeah. They put on these huge feasting tables and each room is a different kind of cuisine, you've got your big cheese feast, you've got your big I know your favourite is the big seafood with all the huge prawns and the lobsters and the Oh, God, everything. It's insane.
1: I've been, I stood by that seafood table in the Royal Academy and I got my elbows out so people can't get anywhere near me. You took so, no photos? So, so, I didn't, no, the camera, I left the camera somewhere else in another gallery somewhere. And I'm just eating the prawns and the smoked salmon and everything. And people said, Don't be enough. No, no, I'm having a problem getting the shell off. <laughs>
0: I actually did. I got caught out when I was shooting that party a few years ago. I think mm-hmm. the PR came over and said, are you going to take any pictures, Hannah? And I turned around, I had a massive piece of Parmesan in my
1: mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the best parties I've been to was, um, many, many years ago, over 25 years ago. It was a Christmas party or well, Christmas time round about that Christmas time. And it was at Cartier and, uh, in Bond street. And i I was there with another photographer and, um, there were three big urns at the end of the room and i could see everybody's scrambling to kind of you know get a piece of it you know whatever they were in there and when eventually i got in front of it they were all f- filled with caviar
0: oh gosh
1: and you never seen anything so disgusting um. in your life i got a plate and a spoon <laughs> i just went bang and i mean i dolloped about The equivalent of maybe 200 pounds worth of caviar on the plate, and this went and hid in a corner somewhere. Fabulous. It was fantastic. Was it beluga? It, well, it might well been, yeah. What is
0: your favourite caviar?
1: Um, beluga uh, comes very high, but yeah. the, but but whatever the next one down is, which the, I, uh, don't, can't I can't remember. The
0: Ocet- Ocetra? Ocetra, maybe.
1: I like, I like that. You know, the the Iranian caviar is yeah. delicious. Oh, so and I'm going to be getting some for Christmas this year.
0: Hope,
1: I hope I'll get a look in. No, 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 no. Oh, no. Really? We're, we're going somewhere secret. It's so <laughs> oh, easier right, on okay. Christmas morning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, whilst your career is obviously evolving. You meet Susan who um, so happens also to be my mother. Funny that. Now obviously she comes from an Iranian background. She's probably unbiasedly one of the best cooks I've met was she starting to cook for you a lot was there a lot more home-cooked meals at this point you weren't going down um earl's court i assume and eating curried eggs
1: oh no (laughs) um she is definitely one of the best cooks i've ever met in my life and i'm not saying that because she's my wife but i'm saying that because it's true and her iranian background uh persian background of food is quite incredible and when she does make her persian nights and there have been many of them um the fight for the crispy bits at the bottom of the rice is is quite um quite astonishing how it goes very very quickly yes and um my favorite part of that evening um of that food is the starter where you get the persian bread and the feta cheese and the herbs and the the sabzi it's called sabzi sabzi I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I love that. I could just eat that alone. Yeah. Just and then the chicken and and uh, and the uh, and everything mix, you know, uh, um it's fantastic. It
0: is an amazing meal. And still at this point when you'd met Susan, you still weren't learning how to cook?
1: I tried to experiment on a San Lorenzo dish with her, which um I I I used to enjoy quite a lot when I was going there. Was tuna fish with with onions and and broad beans. And I, I experimented on making my first meal for her, and of course, it was a complete disaster. What went wrong? It was just tasted awful.
0: Did you cook the tuna?
1: <laughs> tuna was, you know, it was tin tuna. Okay. Like they, they will use, you know, in San Lorenzo. And uh, I, I think I used the wrong color onions. Instead of red onion, I used white onion. And uh, it's just like it was just too lumpy, you know, right, big lumpy. Okay tin tuna and a big lump of onion and you know a whole load of broad beans it, um you know with some a little bit of salt a little bit of pepper and some olive oil just to give it some substance
0: oh, she's still stuck with you
1: She's still stuck with me but she stopped me from cooking
0: oh right yeah i mean i don't blame her
1: <laughs> i'm not bad on fried eggs
0: no i mean i've got to be honest dad it's been 32 years since i've been on this planet and i always know when you've made toast because you simply cannot make toast without burning it I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible.
1: Well, the thing is, it's something nice about toast well done. Uh, it you can know, be well done. Every time, be I go in, every time I go into a restaurant and they give you a slice of toast that hasn't been toasted, I say, can you take it back and toast <laughs> it? I want to see toast toast.
0: you like, the toast please. Mm. So in your later life, you obviously, I mean, as I know, you have a lot of free time during the days because the majority of your work happens in the evening. And one of the ways that you've told me you've sort of kept yourself busy is by watching food shows. I don't think I've met someone who has done such long eight hour marathons of of the food channel. Driving,
1: but- Driving and... <laughs> What's it called? Diamonds. Dri- Diamonds. Yeah. And dives. I love that very much late at night. And uh, they have to lock the kitchen door so I don't go in and, and yeah. venture into the fridge or anything at any ridiculous hour. Rick Stein is my favorite. And as for um, Bourdan, Anthony Bourdan, Anthony Anthony who is a genius in the way yeah. that he conducted his programs and everything else, those guys are my heroes. You know, I I mean, it's nice to have heroes, should they be rock stars, film, you know, film stars or chefs or people that dealt with food, because food is a substance that all of us need. And some of us don't get it because, you know, a lot of poor countries don't eat anything. And when I see the amount of food that gets wasted everywhere, I, I seem to go. I have taken it upon myself to cut back on my intake of food. And I want I want I want be too extravagant on what I order in a restaurant um, a bowl of pasta is okay for me you know
0: and what what is it about um, sort of like your Rick Steins your Anthony's what is it about them that's that's so unique because I don't feel like they're going to make the a Rick Stein anymore you just don't kind of get that
1: I think Rick Stein this, watching him like I did this afternoon on his new cereal about France food in France um is the simplicity of it all yeah and um and he, he doesn't make it complicated for you to understand it like some TV chefs do. They they keep it very, very simple. And um, and some of the food that people like Rick Stein is cooking is so exquisite. It's incredible.
0: I think one of my personal favorite uh, TV chefs has to be Keith Floyd. Oh, yeah. Who was, at, who was drunk in every single episode that he did. He's swigging back the red wine as he's trying to sort of um, cook his soup de poisson and he's brilliant so uh, you're a man about town what would you say were your favourite restaurants in London at the moment
1: at the moment I don't have any real favourites at the moment
0: where do you where do you like where where, where, where would we find you on a Friday night aside from at home
1: (laughs) uh, on a Friday night I like to be maybe at Lalo's is that
0: Uh, Lalo in Notting Hill yeah
1: yeah. Um, I like to be in a Japanese restaurant in uh, Kensington High Street called... Yashin. Yashin. And I like I like the cleanliness of it. Mm-hmm. I love the little lunches that you can buy for somewhere like 15, 16 pounds and with a beautiful fresh salmon or tuna on top. And you get your, your soup and a little salad with Japanese dressing on top, which is absolutely divine and that's about it, really. I'm and not that fussy anymore about where I eat and I, but I like to keep it simple. I don't have the same appetite as I used to have.
0: What what was your appetite before?
1: Oh, just pigging out and just eating <laughs> and just going walking into the fridge every 5 and minutes and, and and I don't do it anymore.
0: Yeah. As humans, we we don't need to eat as much as we think we do.
1: Well, I don't drink any alcohol anymore. I've lost a okay, bit. Well, of
0: that's, that's a lie.
1: <laughs> no, I don't. Last time awesome.
0: I saw you had a glass of whiskey in your hand.
1: No, no, I haven't drank any whiskey for months. Oh, okay. Um, I've, I've stopped drinking and everything else that may come along with it. I just don't do it and I've lost weight and, um, and I feel very much happier for it. And I'm walking every day across the parks and everything. I've conjured up nearly 32 miles this week walking. And wow. I'm very happy about that.
0: One restaurant that has played quite a pivotal part in your life was San Lorenzo. Explain to me sort of how how that, that place has played a part in your career, in your personal life. For those of you that don't know, San Lorenzo is a very well-known Italian restaurant in Knightsbridge, which up until a few years ago had a very fabulous but quite scary woman at the helm called Mara, who owned it along with her husband Lorenzo. Yeah, So tell us a little bit about your time there.
1: San Lorenzo came into my life in 1968. I was dating this little French girl called Marie Claire. She was a hairdresser and she was Mara's hairdresser. Mm. And she said to me, um, I'm going to take you to my, ha- my client's restaurant tonight for dinner. It was a Friday night. And in those days, San Lorenzo was only one small room. Not like it is today. Three big areas downstairs, quite... Quite spread out, and I I arrived there in in San Lorenzo in this small room, and I sat down and I ordered. Uh, I think I had a steak and some salad and everything, and and um, I looked across the room, and in the dark corner to my right was John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Oh wow! And when I saw them, and uh, I thought, so oh. what
0: year was this? Nineteen
1: sixty-eight. Okay. So photography hadn't entered my life yet. Yeah. Then I always said to myself, wow, I'm always going to come back here. (laughs) And I did for the next however 50 years I've been going back there. I've been married twice there.
0: And it's where you met.
1: I met my second wife there. Yeah. All my children have birthday parties there. Yeah, it's been a very, very important restaurant. But more importantly, I've got some of my famous photographs there as well.
0: Who, what would you say was your most well-known photo that had been taken there?
1: There's been lots of stars there. Um, I can't recall which one I think one some of important. your... Um, Princess Diana w- was taken. There's some. a
0: great shot of uh, Mick Jagger as Mick well. Mick Jagger, Eric
1: Clapton. Uh, we done, you done know, real good showbiz parties there.
0: Why, why do you think it really had that gravitas to, to, for celebrities to come there? What was it about the place that made it so special?
1: It was the only place in London that had real original Italian food.
0: Fine, okay.
1: There wasn't that many restaurants, like I said earlier. You know, it was post-war London, back up to the early '70s, um, and there wasn't that many restaurants in London that sold that, that had that quality of food. And Should-
0: also, we must remember, in those days, Italian food was quite exotic. You, you, you weren't raised on pizza and pasta and you know fabulous fish and steak like that you know that was it was must have been quite new. I
1: don't think there was that many pizza places in London no. at that time it was this you know and um, the other place that came along in the early 70s that equally kind of contested San Lorenzo was Langham's. Now Langham's Brasserie in 1975-76 you know came along and for whatever restaurants they were in London, they really took over. And there was four or five tables by the window going down the down the street where if anybody came in from Hollywood or anyone famous, they always sat by the window. So it, it made it easy to t- see who was in that <laughs> night by just standing.
0: Fabulous. T-
1: turning up and um, looking at the window. But my, my dad always taught me, and the same applied to San Lorenzo and Langham's, don't stand outside like a schmo. Go and in, sit inside by the bar.
0: At be a paying customer. Yeah,
1: like being a paying. Now that's equally as important as anything else is becoming a customer of the restaurants that you're targeting. Because then they know you 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 have respect for them. Yeah. you're buying their food. You're tasting their food, and keeping your eye on what's going on around you. Well, and,
0: essentially, you gained their trust and you yeah. and, and their friendship, and yeah. they you know they sort of saw you. And, that, and as what you became, they saw you as an insider. Yeah, you know? I, was, I was an insider yeah. sitting
1: down eating. And then I was an outsider taking the pictures on the street. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was a long time ago. Yeah. So I always ask my guests a couple little quick fire questions. So my absolute favorite food of all time is a good packet of crisps. What is your favorite flavor?
1: My f- favorite flavor of crisps it must be just plain salt. Really? Yeah.
0: Why? Just the simplicity Yeah, of I don't
1: it. like, I mean, a prawn crisp. Ugh. <laughs> I Like uh, Cheese content. and onion. You know, you can't kiss anybody after <laughs> eating those. So just a, just the a plain, you know, salted Good, ones really are fine. Good, really salted.
0: And what do you like, yeah. like a kettle chip or a walker's? Yeah, ke- I like
1: kettle, kettle chips, yeah. So you
0: cut, like, like a bit of a thicker, crispier, yes. crunchier yes, crisp. Yes,
1: yeah. yes. Yeah. And I like the ones that all stick together because it makes it a much more bigger <laughs> crunch.
0: But more buck for your money or whatever <laughs> it yeah, <is>. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. What would be your death row meal, your final meal?
1: Okay, two fried eggs on toast with two pork sausages and some baked beans. Really? Mm.
0: You are quite a simple guy at heart, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah I like yeah, that. Yeah, no messing about. And in your wonderful life in in the showbiz world, who, has there been anyone in particular that you've shared dinner with? Anyone fabulous?
1: I missed a dinner with Bob Dylan because I'm there sorry. was this... Uh, open-air concert up in Finsbury Park and the promoter said to me that and it was pouring and pouring a rain that day and I remember I was at home and he said to me you know uh, like a few days before the concert going um, to be a dinner afterwards Dylan's been invited and I thought yeah sure he's gonna go and um, and and apparently he did and yeah. I, it would have could have been my opportunity I'm to talk sorry. to him
0: and also if you were having a dinner party who would be the three guests I mean, obviously, there'll be more people at dinner, but three guests that you would love to have at a dinner party, dead or alive?
1: I would love to have Charlie Chaplin, one Ooh, side. yes. Right? Um, I'd love to have um, Buster Keaton, the other side.
0: Wow, okay. Right?
1: And then sitting over there, Mallory Monroe. <laughs>
0: Wow, what a little trio that is. Yeah. I mean cuz she's going to have a, she's going to be a bit of fun. Yeah. I mean I don't know much about Buster Keaton. He's funny. Okay. I mean Charlie Chaplin would be incredible.
1: Charlie Chaplin is my all-time hero. Really? Yeah, I love him
0: amazing guy well listen thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been so interesting hearing all about your your love of food your childhood growing up in east london your love of smoked salmon and bagels and and all sorts actually quick one um a smoked salmon bagel or a salt beef bagel
1: smoked salmon bagel
0: and salt beef on rye
1: Yeah, always on rye. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, but what would you prefer?
1: Between what? Between the two. What, salt beef or smoked salmon? Yeah. Oh, it will always be smoked salmon. Yeah. It's easier to digest.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You know what? I think I'm more of a salt beef girl. And that's only been in later life.
1: But I'm trying to see, I'm I'm trying to get off meat.
0: Right. Oh, very political of you. Look at you. You're going to be vegan next. (laughs) anyway listen thank you so much for coming you can follow richard on social media at richardyoung110 and please go and visit his gallery in london which is called the richard young gallery on 4 holland street in w8 thank you for listening and joining us this week please remember to subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend and another and maybe another Don't forget you can follow all the Crazy Sexy Antics on our social media channels, Instagram, Facebook and YouTube, at Crazy Sexy Food. Until next time, goodbye.